Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Bernie Marini. Bernie Marini is friend of the show. He is a pharmacist at the University of Michigan. He is associate professor now in the School of Pharmacy. He is an inpatient leukemia pharmacist and well-loved by everyone practicing <laughs> in pharmacy and leukemia pharmacy. Bernie, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me back, Vinay. It's always great to be on the podcast and get to talk to you. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited too. It's always great to talk about oncology drugs and drug products and how to use them more wisely because it's super important and it's what we do day to day. Absolutely. So, Bernie, before we started, you know, I was asking you casually, how often are you on service? In other words, how often are you the inpatient pharmacist of record? And I expected you were going to tell me something like one week a month, uh, you know, one, three months a year, but you told me something different, Bernie. So how often are you on service? All the time. Uh, <laughs> clinical pharmacy, we don't, we don't really get breaks or, or times off. We're, we're on service all the time. We're that, that continuity on service. Um, but that makes it challenging to get other things done like research and teaching and you know, other academic endeavors. I guess, how do you have time to read? Because as listeners will figure out by the end of this conversation, your knowledge of these drug products is really deep. So you obviously have a lot of time to read and get into it. But how do you have that time? You build that into your just day-to-day -day activities. Yeah, I, I think I, I both build it into our activities. And it's something that we're passionate about. And I think um, most clinical pharmacists are passionate about, you know, knowing as much as they can about these drug products. We're supposed to be the, the drug experts. So picking apart these trials is, is our essential job function. And I think to be that expert on the team, you have to devote time in your day to do these things. But I do think sort of on a national level, one of the challenges that we face as clinical pharmacists is pressure to move away from that sort of thing, to dedicate time to doing research and studying these things and knowing the data and spending more time on other functions to try to you know save money, have less people in the hospital. And I think that's one of the big challenges that we're facing um, sort of on a, on a global clinical pharmacy scale. Yeah, that's really well put. And I think, um, you know, obviously you're, expe you're, you're particularly exceptional at your job and you know these drug products no. super well. Uh, a lot of pharmacists know them very well, but I think I'm, I'm persuaded from your prior visits that you know it exceptionally well. And to put it in perspective, I mean, in my experience, um, you know, and I, and I, I, in my old job, I would attend on leukemia service, maybe four to six weeks a year. And I was one of mm -hmm. the people who attended on the light side, um, uh, more typically, uh, because mm -hmm. I also, I also attended on some other random services, uh, such as classical hematology, one of my favorites, uh, <laughs> <laughs> classical and, um, classical. and, and a little bit of the auto transplant service. But in mm -hmm. my experience, bone marrow transplanters and leukemia doctors, they're often one and the same. Uh, mm -hmm. Somebody who's a really busy clinician is going to be pulling down 12, 13, 14, 20 weeks of service. Um, uh, that's about the most. I mean, that's heroic even. If you get to 20 weeks doing that, that's heroic. So to put it in perspective, you know, the fact that you're there, you know, almost double that amount of time, it's really a very different kind of um, ballpark in terms of longitudinal perspective over the course of a year. Yeah, you get to see 
uh, a lot of patterns on service. I feel like when you come on service, you know, maybe a chunk of the year, you only see the same thing a couple different times. And obviously people have clinic experiences where they see these patients, but when I'm on service, you know, all the time, myself and my colleagues, and we're rotating between the, the different services, we start to see differences in practice. And this is what drives our research too. You know, we note things that we see clinically or differences in practice between different clinicians. And it's what enables us to do a lot of our different uh, research studies, which, you know, aren't always funded, but um, I think contribute to the literature. Uh, immeasurably. Yeah. And I think uh, I must admit, you know, in my new practice, I do uh, a few months of service, like about two or three months of service, but it's a, it's a single service. That's a hemon consult service. It's not, okay. I, I don't rotate on leukemia anymore. Uh, and I miss it a little bit because, yeah. you know, I miss it a little bit. There's something exciting and fulfilling about leukemia because I think when you do a really good job, you can help people a lot. And mm -hmm. you also have to be very meticulous. It requires yes. a level of meticulousness that um, is higher than I think a lot of other medical services because even a little error can be catastrophic um, and right. snowball. And so that's why I really, really enjoy it. Maybe someday I'll be back. I'll be back there. But Bernie, we were going to talk about, you know, two broad topics. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about for the AML lovers, you're going to get an, <laughs> a, we're going to get an AML discussion. We're going to talk about oral ASA. And for the, uh, the, 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 the ALL lovers, you're going to get nilarabine. And mm -hmm. so, so which would we do first, Bernie? Which one do you want to talk uh, about first? Let's start with uh, AML maybe because we okay. we already kind of touched on this in our, our first discussion, um, but we didn't have any publication at that yes. time. Yes, yes. So let's go. So what do we know? This is a this is an interesting drug product. It's oral azacitidine. Of course, azacitidine has been there for a long time. Uh, its mechanism of action is, dare I say, it's a, it's a histone deacetylase inhibitor. It's a hypomethylating agent. So it inhibits... DNA methyltransferase, so essentially causing global DNA hypomethylation. It's a hypomethylating agent. My, my yeah. apologies. My apologies. I mean, Slip of the tongue. It, it, it messes with the epigenetics of the cell, similar yes. to, to HDAC inhibitors. Yes. So, so, and it's been there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. We've, you know, we have had hypomethylating agents, you know, in practice for a number of years. We've been using azacitidine and decitabine in these patients, but this product um, oral azacitidine or CC486 was approved uh, just this past year uh, as maintenance therapy. Now, what was this thing David Steensma was just tweeting recently about how he submitted a manuscript talking about the mechanism of action of this drug and some Puritan wrote back that he had had the wrong mechanism of action? Oh, I don't know. Okay, Anything that David Steensma says is probably correct. So I oh, but no, there's, is... <laughs> there's something. There's something really okay. I want to. I want to find it. Okay, now go on. So oral aza, obviously, it's different because it's branded. It's on patent, and mm -hmm. uh, and there's a big push to do it. The randomized trial of oral aza uh, has one key problem, and that key problem is um, is uh, what happens if you have progression, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a number of issues with this study. I mean, just sort of starting out. So they took these patients after intensive induction chemotherapy. So they mm -hmm. got anthracycline containing induction with, you know, your typical three plus seven or whatever they were doing at these different centers. And then they randomized them to either oral aza maintenance or placebo maintenance. But the problem with that is they didn't provide consolidation therapy as standard of care in the study. And that's a, I think, issue number one with this trial is the lack of consolidation. Because we already know 
consolidation improves these outcomes in these AML patients. We had data from, you know, the late 1980s that if you did nothing, so if you just gave people induction and then did nothing, or if you gave people induction and gave them maintenance with old school chemotherapy or one cycle of consolidation, you significantly improve survival. Mm. So already there in our control arm, we've got a big problem. It's like your discussion of the polo, polo trial uh, in pancreatic cancer long ago. It's this, this want to get people on trial. And they also sort of, they pressured this too. They said, I think in here that you had to enroll within, I think it was like uh, four months of attaining CR. Mm-hmm. So you could barely squeeze in consolidation in there, even if you tried to. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Oh, I hadn't. Okay. So, right, so you yeah, get somebody you, in remission, you know, yes. you do a bone marrow biopsy. But, and you have you a time a window weeks. to get you got into a time it. window. And that time window is such that it precludes, uh, for probably a lot of people who you need a little bit of extra time before you take them to consol- consolidation, it precludes yep. the full consolidation. Bernie, I found what I wanted to say. Um, okay. Uh, here's what it is. Here's the tweet by David Steensma. And this is why I got confused a little bit. Okay. Uh, uh, yes, of course. It's a hypomethylated. He says this, got this gem from reviewer two today at a manuscript that apparently transgressed a personal agenda. Uh he, David Steensma called it a hypomethylating agent, and this is what the reviewer writes, quote, the preferred term is DNA methyl transferase inhibitor. Scholarly articles should not prefer the dumbed down popular monikers, which are not, which are not based in biology. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. I mean, it's, it's technically accurate, but, yeah. you know, we, we let it slide. I, I call it a hypomethylating agent. It's easier to, to abbreviate HMA than it is to abbreviate DNMT3AI, right? DNMT methyltransferase inhibitor is much yeah. harder to say. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, I think we're, we're, we're thinking and we're talking about epigenetic phenomenon here. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then, I mean, and what is the rationale for this? Um, like, how, how does it actually, what, what, is the, what is the causal pathway? The idea is that you, you, you silence gene or you, you, you silence genes um, you turn on and turn off genes in a way that hopefully you get a little bit more tumor suppressor genes and less oncogenes. Is that the idea? Right, right. And so the the idea you're inhibiting DNA methyl transferase. You're inhibiting the the this enzyme from putting on methyl groups on promoter regions. And these methyl groups on promoter regions they prevent DNA expression. They turn it off, right? So you're you're hoping that by hypomethylating, you're turning on genes which will be tumor suppressing and prevent the leukemia from coming back and promote normal hematopoiesis and normal differentiation of your cells. But, and to but, some degree, like, I guess you're, you're praying to turn on P53 yeah, sort of thing, the right, but, yeah. but it, it's sort of like walking into a, a room. Okay. Tell me this in how you're walking into a room. There's a thousand <laughs> light switches on the wall. You just walk up to them, and start flipping the light switches, hoping that it's a brighter room at the end of the day. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, black box of, we don't know what it's turning on or turning off, but sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we don't really have good data on what are the predictors of response in general. So why does kind of wild? Yeah, <laughs> I know it is kind of wild. Actually. I really think it's yeah. kind of wild it's, to some degree. Isn't it even more, um, it's more dirty than any other drug product because even serafinib, a dirty TKI, at least it's the tyrosine kinome, even the cytotoxic drugs um, often are ex- like, obviously tubulin is an exquisite target. Um, uh, uh, but this is really the one that just really, it just flips all these switches. Yeah. And it probably does have some cytotoxic activity too, because Directly. it is, 
it is incorporated into DNA and RNA, depending on what product you're using. So there probably is some other mechanisms. We just, again, it's this black box. And oralase is even even more interesting in that it's, it's an oral product. It's it's a it's oral. So the problem with it is that it's not very bioavailable. Mm-hmm. So you give sub Q or IVAs, you get 100% bioavailability by definition. You give oral, you're only getting about 10 to 20% bioavailability. And so the hypomethylation with this product is significantly less than we see with the normal product we use for treatment. So they're not equivalent. You can't well, let just me ask say, you this. Is it is it the actual drug product or is it a pro drug? Um, I believe it's a, a uh, the actual drug product. Then why did it take them so many years to make an oral formulation? Yeah. That's a great question. I, I actually haven't really looked at this. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I also blew the mechanism of action. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, you, I, yeah. you all have, I didn't have my coffee. Okay. So, so, so it's I, early. It's early. It's early. I blew what I was going to say. Okay. But, but now we're getting to the right track. Okay. So, um, that's interesting. And I guess the other thing is anytime you tell me bioavailability is low, my natural question is going to be bioavailability is often sort of a distribution. And if you eat the right thing or your stomach is more acidic or whatever, it can vary quite a bit. Do you know anything about that for this drug? Is there a lot of variability in bioavailability based on food or timing or? There seems to be a decent amount, but it's not as affected as, you know, some of our other TKIs. Yes. Um, you know, a lot of our BCR-ABLE TKIs, yes. we have these patients on PPI. You look at the error bars and some yes. of these, yes. like these PK uh, studies and they yes. are all over the place. So yeah, and- that's a problem with the majority of oral TKIs. And even like um, I was reading about, uh, obviously, abiraterone and ibrutinib mm-hmm. and, and food. Fu- and, food. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and actually, Bernie, the drug that we'll care about, what about venetoclax in food? Isn't yeah, venetoclax is affected by food. Um, and probably the other major issue is um, SIP inhibitors, right? Because yes. all these AML patients, they need antifungals. They need them. Um, yeah. Their risk of mold infections is so high because of that duration of neutropenia. And we're not great at picking the right dose. So like for, for venetoclax and azoles, for instance, for strong inhibitors, yes. um, the original studies said, you know, you should reduce the dose to like 50 milligrams a day, but those error bars are huge. And that's a huge dose reduction in these patients. Um, and then they did studies with, with other CYP3 4 inhibitors like ketoconazole and Vori. And they said, oh, maybe you, you dose reduce it a little bit different. Maybe you only do hundred a day. So what did the FDA choose? They chose 70 milligrams a day. Let's just hmm. split the difference um, <laughs> and give some random dose that doesn't exist with, with our azole antifungal. So even that, you know, we can't decide what dose to give for these patients. Do you believe that, I mean, in clinical practice, we often, when you do azaven, you often mm-hmm. run into the situation that they have really bad myelosuppression. Uh, and do you believe some of that is just because we're dosing inappropriately based on the antifungal on board? I don't think it matters that much. Okay. I think, okay. you think there it's is the drug some, itself. Yeah. 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 The drug itself is definitely causing myoexpression. There is some data um, from MD Anderson um, that looked at whether or not patients were on CYP3 4 inhibitors and whether or not their duration of neutropenia was longer. Yes. But the problem with that is that's retrospective data, right? And so patients who we put on CYP3 4 inhibitors were people we anticipated a long degree in neutropenia, or maybe they were neutropenic coming into it. And so perhaps that's the reason why those patients on the two concomitant drugs had a longer duration. So there's really no way to, uh, to tell yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and when you look in the original sort of dose escalation of 400, 800, 1200, the major difference in side effects was GI side effects from mm -hmm. taking, you know, eight to 12 pills a day, not from, you know, excess cytopenias. They state that in the discussion section, but nowhere do you actually find the numbers that validate those results. I see. So Interesting. I think the drug causes a lot of cytopenias and they need azole antifungals. And the difference between 50 and 100 probably isn't clinically relevant. So just pick whichever one's your favorite. I see. And put okay. them on an azole. I see. <laughs> okay. So uh, I distracted you, but let's go back okay. to let's go back to our thing. So you were talking about the oral aza, and you say the paper's been published. You're referring to the New England Journal paper that came out um, yep. at the end of last year. Yep. Okay. So now we have data. Yes. Ah, oh, because when we talked about it last, it was just before the paper. So we, yeah, it was we didn't have just right. an ash abstract and mm. some press releases. And so mm. we were kind of hunting and finding data, but now we have an actual publication in our hands. Okay. So um, where did you leave off? What, what, what do you want? So next? we were yeah. talking about yes. uh, the time sort of window the, to enroll the time yes. window. Yeah. Yes. So you had, you had four months to enroll these people. And so the amount of consolidation they got was substandard. So in general, in practice, we're aiming for three to four cycles of cytarabine consolidation mm -hmm. of high-dose cytarabine for our younger patients and some dose reduction of high-dose cytarabine for older patients. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, we're aiming for three to four cycles. So in the study, 20% of people got zero consolidation, which we mm -hmm. already knew from the 80s was a bad idea. Right. So this is, I, I see. And the analogy to Polo, of course, is this is like taking somebody who's responding to platinum and stopping mm -hmm. treatment. This is yep. taking somebody who should be getting consolidation and stopping treatment, yep, basically. Exactly. So you can exactly. randomize them to sugar pill or your drug. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, that's so it's a, like, it's a problem. Visa maintenance versus consolidation is what should have been done in the other arm. And then consolidation might have even won, just like Polo. It's right. possible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's a. I think that's a huge problem. And then, um, uh, 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 and the way the inclusion criteria is written, that you have to include, you have to be enrolled within four months. And that is that four months of the original CR. Yep. Yep. So, so you so you attain a CR. So you give them induction chemo. Maybe after their counts recover, you do a bone marrow biopsy. You say they're in CR or CRI, and then within four months of that time point, you got to enroll them. What's the soonest that could happen? A day 21, day 28 kind of situation? What's the yeah, soonest? because you have to wait for count, count recovery. recovery. Yeah. Okay. So we we'll can't use an aplasia marrow or right. anything like that. You can't use an aplasia marrow. Okay. So, yeah. but we're still talking about it could be as soon as a month in, into therapy. Yep. Okay. All right. So that's, uh, okay. That's rapid. <laughs> okay. And then from that moment, the clock is ticking. They got to get in the study if you want to get in the study. study. Okay. And we know that takes a little time too. So, you know, you know, when you're, when you're evaluating somebody for a trial, it's not just like, I want this guy on trial and boom, he's enrolled the next day. Right. Of course. So you might say, ah, I want to get him on this trial. Should we give another cycle? Oh, are we yeah. going to miss our window? Yeah. I think that biases people to giving less consolidation cycles. Yes. And of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because if you're, if you're currently in a nadir, they're not going to take you on the Correct. trial. Right. So you have Correct. to have recovered to be in the trial. So if anything, you're going to say the window is narrow, it's closing. I have all these eligibility studies to get done. Um, and I need to get those done. And I don't want to risk giving him another, um, cycle because he could have a protracted, um, uh, neutropenia and, uh, a protracted, uh, impaired bone marrow state. And then he won't get on the trial and then he will miss our window entirely. Um, wow. Okay. Well that's said. A, yeah. No, that's a really, that's a really good point. Okay. So that's your first point. What else you got? First point. Second yeah. point. These patients were supposed to be ineligible for transplant, right? 
um, because if they were, because these were not good risk patients, these were patients who were, were de novo AML or secondary AML who were intermediate or poor risk. Most of uh -huh. these were intermediate risk patients. So okay. technically these patients should go to transplant, but for some reason did not. Now, the only asterisk I'll say is we'll all agree that the poor risk AML should go to transplant in CR1. And the intermediate is a big asterisk. I agree. That's, okay. That's what yeah. I was going to say because <laughs> I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Yeah. See? I think intermediate risk is, is sort of a nuanced discussion. But if yes. you have a fit patient who's less than 65 with no comorbidities and is maybe on the higher end of that intermediate risk spectrum, maybe with a good donor, you take yes. a transplant, right? But what about, um, isn't there this randomized control trial that'll be presented at ASH on this issue? Have you seen this? Yeah, I'm interested to see those results. Okay. Yeah. Um, European we'll study. To, yeah. And I yeah. think, and just to tell the listeners, my understanding is it is intermediate risk AML mm -hmm. randomization to allo and CR1 versus delayed allo in a subsequent CR, which right. maybe not everyone is going to get to, but some people is going to get to, but it's a classic strategy it's in biomedicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like, and do you need this now versus could you get it on the back end kind of strategy which is the same thing as this oral asa study basically yes. oh. right the same flaw same concept i totally agree and i think we're we're learning more and more that maybe not all intermediate risk patients don't do need to go to transplant but if you look at these eligibility criteria and i just said you know median age 68 all patients ecog zero to one mm, those patients are probably transplantable transplantable yeah. <laughs> about 10 to 15%, 15% being poor risk. Mm, why don't you take these people to transplant? If they were if they were at Hopkins, they'd say, what, what's holding you back? You should, yeah. they, you'd, you'd have been transplanted already at Hopkins. Okay. And you had, you had about 10 to 15 not get transplanted because of the patient decision. Um, you had other reason in about 10%. So about 20, 25% of patients probably should have went to transplant and instead are getting no consolidation and placebo. Mm. So, okay, not ideal. Yes. So, so go on. Okay. So, so the first point you want to make is the way this trial is structured. It's probably under treating people. The second point you want to make is the way these people look and and sound. Some of these people probably were allo should have been headed to allo rather than chemotherapy at all. They should have been directed in the allo direction after induction. That's a really mm -hmm. a good point. And all of these biases are enriching the trial with sicker people more likely to relapse. And then if you have a control arm where you don't give them anything, sugar pill, don't be surprised if relapses happen. Yeah. Yeah. You're MRD positive. You don't go to transplant. You don't get consolidation. Of course, that patient's going to relapse. Right. Then we come to our other issue. Yes, the double and dosing. It, it's, yeah, the double <laughs> dosing. So, so they assess response, which is also not something that we'd normally do in practice. So they assess marrows every, I think it was every three months on this trial. So every mm -hmm. three cycles, they did another bone marrow biopsy to see where the disease was, and that's not something we typically do in practice. Um, if somebody's counts are great, we're not going to continue to do repeat marrows regularly. Mm -hmm. And if they saw less than 5% blast, they just kept going. If they saw five to 15% blast, which is AML relapse, they just increased the dose of whatever they were on either oral ASA or placebo from 14 days to 21 days. So for relapsed AML placebo, and this wasn't like, you know, oh, this only occurred in like 5% of patients. This was 20 to 25% of the population at relapse got placebo for treatment. Oh my goodness. So this is, I mean, just to try to stress how important this is, basically 
you know, um, you could argue that the experimental arm should have this design feature, that if you are starting sure. to blast off a little bit, you maybe crank up the AZA and you get control again. But what you can't argue is that it's ethical or justifiable to have somebody on the control arm getting a sugar pill, and as you're seeing them blast off, you tell them we're just going to double the dose of your sugar pill. Um, you know, there's that... <clears throat> There's this like 1970 war novel about Vietnam um, mm -hmm. by, Tim, by Tim O'Brien. I think it won the National Book okay. Award. And in the in the award, there was, I, I believe, a scene. And a listener who knows this better than me, please write in and tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> There's a scene where the doctor is taking care of a soldier who's like, you know, been shot and is going to die in the field. And as the soldier's dying, he puts some M&Ms in his mouth because that's all he has. And he says, just swallow these. You'll be okay, buddy. You'll be okay. A sort of a comforting mm -hmm. thing to him. And... Uh, and it's such a powerful scene because you can feel like, um, you know, the pain to be such a doctor and the only thing yeah. you're offering somebody is that comfort. Um, and yet that's the control arm of this stupid study. That's a control arm of this study. It's, Am I wrong? It's so a sugar true. pill. Yeah. You're not wrong. That's 100% true. Terrible. Um, it was optional. It was optional. <laughs> but in a trial like this. You don't know if you're giving your patient placebo or, or oral AZA. Right. And, and, and the fact is it's an option that was taken in 20 some percent of people. Yeah. Which is not trivial, yeah. It's not trivial. Yeah. Okay, go on. What else did you find? This is good. But then we look at what they got other than placebo. Um, so of the people who got subsequent therapy, um, about 30 to 40% were intensive chemotherapy strategies in the placebo arm. Mm. And about 47% were low-intensity therapy. And this is really important. Like, What does low-intensity therapy mean here? Um, because we asked this previously yeah, and don't say the company yeah. had told us that, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of those were azacitidine or decidabine as relapse treatment, which is fine. But a good proportion of that 47% was lotoserase oh, or hydria. Oh no. And the numbers are not reported. And so oh, we wrote a letter no. to the editor. So we wrote yes. a letter in new England journal basically asking kindly, please provide us with what the low intensity therapies were. Mm -hmm. And they didn't answer our question. Of course. Let me read this. Here it is to the editor. Uh, you write the author state the media. Oh, okay, the author state the median duration of relapse free survival quote unquote probably explains longer duration of oral survival. However, the use of quote quote unquote low intensity salvage regimens, placebo hydroxyurea and low dose cytarabine could also have contributed to this finding. It would be helpful to specify which reinduction regimens were used and the frequency of administration, since not all low dose therapies are created equal. And by that you mean that you believe low dose cytarabine is demonstrably inferior to alternatives, and that's been shown right in randomized trials. And mm -hmm. hydroxyurea, no one even I mean, are there yeah. even randomized trials? No one even would think it's even on yeah. the same ballpark, right? As active anti-cancer drugs. And maybe it didn't count in here, but that's not what we were told. And I want to see the data, right? I mean, yes. we deserve to know what these patients are getting because it comes to your point earlier. Is it better to treat these patients now with <clears throat> oral AZA forever, or is it better to treat these patients at relapse? And in all previous maintenance trials, when you give adequate post-protocol therapy, and there's relapse. no overall survival benefit. To maintenance. Yes. Yet right. somehow, magically yes. in this study with sub inferior oral mm. azacytidine with lower bioavailability, we now magically have a survival difference. Mm. I call it bullshit. 
Oh, you're right. <laughs> That's really well articulated. Here's what it says. They didn't reply to you. I'm just looking at this right now. More patients receive post-protocol therapy in the placebo group than the than Thanks. you know the drug. Okay, sure. Of course. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Including more frequent use of post-protocol intensive chemotherapy. They actually just ignored it entirely. Come oh, yeah. on. That's oh, bad. Yeah. That's bad. Usually I feel like New England Journal should compel the authors to reply. Hmm. Yeah. I don't like that. Okay. So, this is it. I mean, you've already put the nail in the coffin, but uh, yeah. do you have you have more? You have more? I of course have more. Um, <laughs> what else? You so got? I mean, obviously, we want overall survival to be better. Correct. But maybe that bar has not been met because of trial designs, and ideally, we want quality of life to be better as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I have an issue with the way that quality of life is studied and described <laughs> in these trials. Um, so if you read the health related quality of life sort of paragraph. It's one of the most confusing paragraphs ever. And I don't know what it means. Right. Mm. And as a clinician, I should be able to tell what these scales mean. What is a meaningful difference? What is Mm. not a meaningful difference? Um, And they just make it so needlessly complicated, but essentially their message is quality of life is not worse Mm. when you get oral azacytidine. Mm. But if you actually, Mm. yeah, over sugar pill. Right. But if you actually look at the toxicity profile, there's significantly more toxicity in the oral ASA arm than the placebo arm, period. Mm -hmm. There's more GI side effects. There's more fatigue. There is more toxicity to give someone a drug forever than there is to give them nothing and observe. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's just, there's no way quality of life was exactly the same. And when you look at their, if you look in the supplementary appendix, they have some nice figures of sort of quality of life over time, if you pull it up, and I'd encourage all the listeners to pull that up, they sort of graph the changes in these scores from baseline over time. Yes. And the placebo group quality of life improves, right? And in the oral ASA arm, it stays about the same. And they do mm. separate, mm-hmm. but I don't know what that scale means. I don't know, does that mean people are more tired, less tired, et cetera? I think it's a, a great unknown here. And, and I don't think we can say that quality of life truly is preserved. And there are some time points where quality of life is worse with oral ASA. Mm. So I think this is sort of misleading to say, yeah, it's fine. You just leave them on azacytidine forever. They do great. It's fine. I think that's not true. And part of this is also how you measure quality of life. Right. So they use these two surveys right. and they're very complicated to generate these scores. But one of them is this facet fatigue survey. And they say, indicate your response in the last seven days right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And think about when they assess these things. So they assess these things at the start of the next cycle. Mm -hmm. You get oral azacytidine for 14 days. Mm -hmm. And then for 14 days, you get get nothing. Yes. Yes. So So then you assess quality of life. Yes. Right. Compared to nothing. So it's it's not a true representation of their quality of life on therapy, including the other survey was check your quality of life that describes your health today. Again, oh, which has nothing to do with while therapy. you were on drug. Okay, so I have some thoughts here. One thought is um, this particular problem that you're articulating, which is that quality of life is not a true representation of quality of life on therapy. It was also once upon a time used to penalize sunitinib. I don't know if you mm-hmm. you don't follow the RCC literature. There's a not really. <laughs> okay, there's a randomized trial by GlaxoSmithKline. Their okay. drug is pazopinib, and it's a non-inferiority trial against the standard of care in kidney cancer at the time, which was sunitinib. And in this study, 
they claim to be non-inferior in terms of PFS, but the upper bound of the hazard ratio is like 1.21. A listener can check me, which it's like mm-hmm. actually quite a permissive upper bound. It could be you know, up to 20% inferior. But in addition to that, they have quality of life scores that they say support their drug product. But the problem mm-hmm. with the quality of life scores is sunitinib was four weeks on, two weeks off, and their drug is continuous. And they always administer mm. it on the fourth week. So sunitinib <laughs> is at like the worst you've ever felt before you get your break. Right. But their drug, you know, it's it, it could have drawn at any time point. So in this case, they're basically picking a time point where it's the best it's ever going to be on Aza because you're not taking anything. You know, to be honest... We should always wonder if somebody says that a cancer drug is uh, no worse quality of life than not taking any cancer drug at all, you might have to start to wonder. So all adjuvant drugs, lower quality of life, and all maintenance drugs, lower quality of life, because the control arm is not doing anything at all by definition. And if you're not capturing that, you've probably rigged your system, I think. Yeah. Right. And and to be fair, this observation arm isn't exactly representing quality of life in the real life setting because they're bone marrow biopsying these patients every three months while they're on maintenance, which again, does not represent real life practice either. So yeah, I'd say is a buzzkill. That's a bit of a buzzkill. It's a bit of a buzzkill. It's very unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, not, it's not, no, it's not that unpleasant, but it's sometimes unpleasant. Some people, (laughs) uh, here's how I actually counsel the bone marrow. You tell me if you disagree. I say, I say, I say, um, you know, obviously the person who's going to be doing this has done a lot of them. And I like to liken this to, I mean, you're going to come into the, and we, you know, we mostly do outpatients. So like Mm -hmm. you come into the office and you're going to lay down on that table here and you can just have to lay flat for maybe about, um, you know, duration of the procedure. And then you lay on your back for, you know, 30 to 60 minutes afterwards. Um, And I, and I say that, you know, we numb it up real good and ideally you're supposed to feel pressure, but not Mm -hmm. sharp pain. And, and then I say, I kind of think of it like, it's kind of like going to the dentist and getting a root canal, except uh, it's, it's not in your mouth. It's on your backside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. not, I think that's. I fair. wouldn't know, but it okay. seems seems fair. Seems fair. I, and people who are really good, you know, it's it's yeah. much less painful. And somebody who comes in nervous, shaky hands, I was like, that's not going to be good. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, you want a confident operator. You want a confident yeah. operator. I mean, I, I give credit to our our people at Michigan who do it. All of our nurse practitioners and PAs and. Uh, all of our fellows do a phenomenal job. Uh, I can't imagine doing so many bone marrow biopsies throughout the day. Um, yeah, I could never do it. Uh, yeah. That's why I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> well, I guess um, different places I've worked have different pl- different rules, but some places mm-hmm. the attending had to do it with the fellow or teach the fellow and mm-hmm. some places the, the NP does it. And one place had like one NP who did them all for 25 years. And I was like, that's the place. <laughs> that's the place. One person <laughs> yeah. did it for 25 yeah. years. Can do it in their yeah. sleep. Okay, so back to this. Okay, so yeah, you've convinced me that there's something curious about this quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe it's non-inferior to sugar pill. I believe it is inferior. So how much no, inferior? Yeah. And I would encourage people to take a peek at those those figures in the, the supplementary appendix. There was also an ASH abstract last year that has the same, same picture in it. And it basically mm. just graphs it over time. There's a paper on it and they don't show those same graphs and mm. the graphs they show, I can't even interpret. Mm. I don't understand what they mean, which we, we should be describing quality of life changes in like terms we can understand, mm-hmm. like that patients can understand, like we're the real life clinicians, like we're explaining these changes to patients. Like when I read this paragraph and say there were the minimum least squares difference in whatever was 0.1 versus this. How do I articulate that to someone? 
I like I like I like this sentence. This sentence from the paper: mixed yeah. effects models with repeated <laughs> measures, which controlled for the baseline health-related quality of life scores and other pre-selected covariates, showed no clinically meaningful differences in the least yeah. squares mean changes from baseline between treatment groups at any visit. A finding that supported the non-inferiority of CC four eight six relative to placebo for health-related quality of life. Doesn't that just just show crystal clear what it means? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe someone smarter in quality of life measures can somehow translate that into patient language that we can use and, I, and justify it. My best, my best <laughs> summary would be like, we, we didn't analyze this as a between-arm comparison. We're looking at everyone compared to who they were when <laughs> they started, and we're measuring their change in quality of life compared to where they started, and the aggregate change of those modeling exercises was on average no different between one group than the other with the pre-selected boundary we had chosen, which was rather permissive. So I think that's how I would, I don't know, that's my best attempt. That's a good, that's a good summary. I like that. (laughs) Maybe, maybe some stats person will, will write to me and tell me how to say it, but okay. So anything else with this study or is it late to rest? I mean, I feel like we, we beat the dead horse. Um, I I think, uh, we've got a drug. drug. Does it have any role? Not right now. Not right now. But I'll tell I you what the role is. is. The role is like the holy grail idea that there's an all oral, an all oral regimen. Yeah. Oral is that, event. Yeah. Now that IV and sub QAs are generic, you know that this is the future <clears throat> is oral ASA for longer durations for these patients, which they claim improves adherence. Yeah, I call it BS. But yeah, you know, we'll we'll see what where the data goes. But right now for maintenance therapy, I would prefer to give my patients adequate consolidation therapy and adequate post post protocol treatment. Yeah. And not give them maintenance therapy if they don't need continuous therapy and the excess cost of, you know, three hundred thousand dollars, which is, you know, five or six resident salaries and you know, a couple cars for that patient. Yeah, that's uh well said. Agree hundred percent. Okay, should we do nalarabine? Let's do it. Let's do it. So I, I kind of wanted to talk about the the COG paper of nalarabine. Okay, um, pull it up. You start, yes. Yeah, so this is the, the 0434 paper. Um, and this trial um, has sort of made nalarabine the de facto standard of care for patients with T-cell ALL, definitely in the PEDS setting, and it's sort of trickling its way into the adult setting as we treat all of our adult patients like like pediatric patients, which mm. again is you know based on that AYA data. Yes. So nalarabine, um, this is a drug that is a prodrug of mm. era G. So this one, this one is for sure a prodrug. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why it works so well in T cell ALL mm-hmm. um, is because when you deplete um, or when you have an excess of, of G nucleotides, like you see in patients with, um, purine nucleoside phosphorylase deficiency, mm, that's selectively obviously. toxic mm-hmm. to T lymphocytes. So these T cells accumulate this D GTP, um, and G, but it doesn't accumulate in B cells. So it's mostly active in T cell ALL and nalarabine because of the problems with giving G, it's not very, um, able to be in solution. It's not very stable. They made a pro drug of it. That's basically activated or, or, or initially cleaved by adenosine deaminase. And then it becomes era G and then it's incorporated into the cell as era GTP. So it's a, a purine analog. 
Wait, okay, now go back. Explain the one thing to me, as if I'm not so bright. The part where... So why is the T-cell exquisitely susceptible to an influx of ARG? Yeah, so T-cells, um, they they accumulate... When they accumulate um, guanine nucleotides like DGTP, mm-hmm. um, and in this case, ARG, mm-hmm. um, it's toxic to T-cells uh, because it leads to dysfunction of the purine salvage pathways. Mm -hmm. Um, So patients with purine nucleoside phosphorylase deficiency, Mm -hmm. so PNP is the enzyme that Mm -hmm. um, cleaves um, the, the, the base pair from the, from the sugar. Sure. Um, In patients who are deficient of that enzyme, they develop T cell deficiency and aplasia. Right. I see. Because these, this GTP accumulates in cells. But why doesn't, so, the, but the person with that deficiency enzyme, they'll have that deficiency in all the cells, but you're saying the other cells are not as susceptible. Not as susceptible, um, possibly not, because of yeah. other salvage pathways or I other see. redundant pathways. I see. Um, so the, I guess this, so I, what you're saying is from a naturally occurring group of people deficient in an enzyme, the observation was out. made yep. that this is a T cell, uh, important yep. pathway for T cells. And that's allowed us to create a prodrug and that yep. prodrug actually converts um, to ARG, but that ARG is actually in the circulation. It goes to every cell. Um, well, GTP does, but ARG but is sort does. of a, yep. ARG is sort of a, an analog of it that, that we give that, that is cytotoxic to these T cells. I see. But, but of all the cells in the body it goes to, it's preferentially T-cells. toxic in T-cells. Right. Okay. Yep. Now, there was another drug on the last time you talked about in leukemia that was toxic to one particular cell line. What was that one? Do you remember? For similar sort of thing, that that, that, that cellular lineage lacked some enzyme. Yeah. That's a great question. <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to think of what we talked about. We talked about... Um, what did we, we did ALL last time. Yeah. Was it... And um, was, it asper- was it asparaginase? Maybe? Well, asparaginase is toxic to lymphocytes because yes, they yes, lack yes. asparagine yes. synthetase. Yes, yes, we did talk about it, that. Yes, yes, that's what we talked. That's what it was. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I guess, I guess, so if I were to say, I mean, if I were to say this back to mm-hmm. say confirm my knowledge, um, some wise biologist observed that among these kids who were presenting with no T cells, um, mm-hmm. probably probably the first presentation was they had some infections and they didn't infections, have T cells. Yeah. Right. They had some infections as they don't don't have T cell mediated immunity. And then when they looked for it, they found that they had a deficiency in one particular enzyme and that mm-hmm. enzyme was related to this pathway. And then some scientists, uh, some cancer biologists thought, oh, well, if you happen to have a cancer yeah. of the T cell, why don't we exploit this pathway? Yeah, let's Got just it. give ARG. And it was too hard to give ARG because of issues with solubility. I see. So they said, let's make a prodrug. And then we have nalarabine. Nalarabine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm with you. Um, so, so theoretically should work T-cell diseases. Yep. Should work. And was approved originally in the yes. relapse refractory setting based That's on, response as rate. you see, yeah. response rate. Yeah. Maybe not the greatest data, but yeah. anywhere right. from... 20% to 50% activity, I would say, in relapsed T-cell, ALL, and other similar diseases, and given in a number of different fashions in peds and adults. Mm. So we knew it worked in the salvage setting. So the next step was, let's move it into the upfront setting. Mm-hmm. Um, now in adults, there was a study of hyper-CVAD with nalarabine, which was essentially a, a negative trial. They saw no improvement over historical control. Because again, we don't do randomized trials. <laughs> mm, that's unfortunate. Um, but, if know, you, but if you can't even beat a historical control, you're really probably <laughs> yeah, not doing pretty, so good. Not great, right? Yeah, that's a low bar. So, yeah. 
So the COG designed the 0434 study. Randomized. Which was a two-by-two pseudo-factorial design. So they had two randomizations. One was to Capizzi-style methotrexate, Mm. which is basically a lowish dose of methotrexate that we increase every 10 days based Mm -hmm. on their cytopenia. So it's Mm -hmm. escalating doses of methotrexate um, without leucovorin rescue. And that's also paired with pegasparaginase. Mm -hmm. So that Capizzi Mm -hmm. arm gets more peg than the high-dose methotrexate arm that just gets high-dose methotrexate. Mm -hmm. And in that randomization, those data were published. There was a survival benefit, albeit very small, to the Capizzi methotrexate arm. Wow. Okay. Who would have thought? Now, major flaws. Again, one arm gets more peg than the other arm. So yes. okay. you're not exactly comparing apples to oranges. Right. Um, there is some bioplausibility here where um, we think that T cells, um, they don't convert... Um, they don't convert the the methotrexate to the polyglutamate derivatives as mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. So when methotrexate gets in the cell to inhibit, you know, folate synthesis and a bunch of other pathways, it's polyglutamated. So it adds a bunch of glutamines to it. So it stays in the cell longer. There's less um, FPGS, which is that enzyme that does it in T cells compared to B cells. I see. So mm-hmm. theoretically, maybe high dose methotrexate doesn't work as well. The other issue, though, with this entire randomization issue is they took all patients that had CNS disease and they put them on the high-dose methotrexate arm. So they they made one arm probably perform worse than the other arm. But that's another another discussion altogether. <laughs> so they subverted randomization and moved them all over there? Yeah. Oh, that's not, that's not good. I think because of the concept of trying to provide CNS activity, because with sure. Capizzi, you're not getting CNS activity, but... You but know, in a randomized I, trial, the easy thing to do is you, yeah, you exclude them from your, st- yeah, you're not supposed to just shove them on. But so why do they call it? So that's why they call it pseudo factorial randomization. Yes, because of that. And there were some other patients that were non-randomized to certain arms for various reasons. <laughs> uh, so it's a pseudo randomization. Yeah. yeah. For the most part, it's, patients were randomized. A, for the most part. I see. We mostly randomize patients. But to basically ex- four different arms. Except so, for the times we didn't randomize them. Yep. Capizzi or high dose. <laughs> except for the times where we did it. Yeah. Except for the times where we were like, yeah, that's all right. So Capizzi, high dose, nilarabine, no nilarabine. You got four different arms here. And this was just high risk patients or intermediate risk patients. So no low risk patients per their criteria. So yeah, already what, those patients. What, what criteria are they using? So there's a bunch of different, there's a whole chart in there so it's low risk by nci risk plus i think it was mrd time points at like day 15 they have very strict rules for who's standard risk who's low risk off the top of my head i don't think i know the t-cell all risk criteria yeah i think it's by age white count Mm. whether they have cns disease okay. and then whether uh, I, they're obvious things like that okay yeah, rapid yeah, okay. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty straightforward okay and, okay and it's it's it makes sense it's not anything too crazy um but in this study they they were their primary endpoint here was disease-free survival mm. so not overall survival so that's sort of our first sort of issue here yes and what did they find yes they found that patients getting nilarabine had better disease-free survival than patients getting no nilarabine, hmm. but overall survival was no different. 
at 90% versus 88%. So 2% absolute difference, no difference in overall survival. And this became standard of care and T-cell ALL. No. Give all the T-cells. and the Oh, yeah. What? Every protocol now. Yep. What? But there's no mm-hmm. OS. I'm looking at it now. Um, mm-hmm. What's going on here? Here's the OS is basically superimposable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and more importantly, let's talk about the curative tail. The curative tail is essentially the same on both. I mean, even the DFS yeah. curative tail, right? The yeah. tail, the tails touch. Um, yeah. so if any, and, like it, it, it delays the relapse maybe a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Which we decided earlier, maybe that the drug works in relapse. Right. We also have no information about who got it at relapse because, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I don't know, but that, I think this is a huge problem. I think these outcomes are primarily driven by one arm that did poorly or more poorly than the others. And it was the high dose methotrexate arm without nalarabine. You're right. All the other three arms are indistinguishable. Yeah. Uh, Capizzi, methotrexate, nalarabine, Capizzi, methotrexate, no nalarabine, and high dose methotrexate, nalarabine, indistinguishable. One arm with 185 participants is doing significantly worse than most. Um, Wow. Interesting. Now, I think the the big thing is well, why not? Why not just give people nalarabine? You know, cost. what's the what's the downside? Well, one yeah. is cost. Okay. I think cost is an issue. It's been on shortage for like an eternity, mm. um, so that's another issue. But the other issue is toxicity. Yes, it does add toxicity. Um, there have been several cases of you know fatal neurotoxicity um, in the trial. There's no difference in neurotoxicity. They capture and describe mostly high grade, mostly grade three, four neurotoxicity. And a problem with this is if you look at the treatment arms, the, the nalarabine arm gets less vincristine than the no nalarabine arm. Mm-hmm. So you're missing like three doses. Now, whether three doses or four doses is significant, it's hard to say, mm-hmm. but you're, you're not capturing exactly the same thing in both groups. And we already know from our experience with this drug previously that definitely causes toxicity, causes neurotoxicity. So you're adding a drug that might move the needle a teeny tiny bit for DFS, but not when you compare it to just Capizzi methotrexate, only against that one arm that performed poorly. Mm-hmm. And there's no survival benefit. Mm-hmm. And you're putting them at risk for having toxicity. And that's what I have a problem with. Um, so, Yeah. Does it sl- does it prolong the course of treatment or slow count recovery? Not significantly. Okay. Cytopenias aren't a huge problem with this. Okay. There are certain courses that are slightly longer because they had to squeeze in five days of nalarabine without causing horrible neurotoxicity in these patients. Right. So they had in some cases, like in maintenance and in delayed intensification, they had to take away um, a couple of vincristine doses so they could squeeze it in. I see. So- is it better to give than Christine and Capizzi or is it better to give just a whole bunch of nalarabine? From yes. this trial, it does not, it's not compelling enough to say everyone should get it. Now, there yes. are some subgroups that I think probably perform better with nalarabine. So there's certain, you know, very high risk patients, um, or maybe those that have high MRD, maybe those patients benefit. But giving it to every T cell ALL. Mm-hmm. across the board, whether they're, you know, standard risk, low risk, high risk, I think is a huge mistake. And now this data 
is bleeding into the adult setting, which is where I started having a problem with it right. is when people start asking me, why aren't we giving our T-cells nilarabine? and everybody else is doing it? And I say, based on what data, you know, right. there's no survival benefit to this drug. So the more I look yeah. at this data, the more I'm like, I've got a few problems. I mean, I don't know, I, I guess um, I strongly feel as if the results that we're seeing are due to chance alone. Like they're not, it's not even a real effect. And I mean, it's I tiny. think it's, it, yeah, the, one is the effect size is small. Two is that, um, with, you know, two is that the effect size is really driven by one arm. Um, mm -hmm. uh, three is the effect, si the effect does not carry over overall survival in any way, shape or form. And then I'm thinking about it more and I feel like, I don't know, I mean, is, is the hazard ratio of DFS really the thing we're after in such a disease? Or, I mean, what should a trial like this be powered for? I mean, it should be powered for like a several percentage point increase in cure rate. Um, and by cure, I mean like long-term disease-free survival. Um, mm -hmm. Like not a DFS. I mean like living several years without ever requiring an additional treatment. Um, mm -hmm. It really should be powered for a plateau. And like the plateau, even with the hazard ratio DFS benefit, it appears the plateaus converge in this yeah. you know, analysis. Um, so like i don't know even if you set, even if you thought the effect was statistically real it is a delay in the time to relapse and right. not and not a durable increase in fractional cure but i'm looking at it and i'm pretty confident that if you repeated this experiment 10 times that the majority of those studies are going to be null if you did it 100 times it's mostly going to be a null city um i'm not sure that this even has a real therapeutic effect on dfs um Certainly not OS, which is actually the no. thing that we actually care about. Um, it's a problem. And then the, the other argument that people are making is, you know, the CNS relapse rates are lower with nilarabine. But again, these are true? driven by one arm. They're driven by one arm. The high-dose methotrexate so, arm? The high-dose methotrexate alone arm. So mm. yes, maybe in the high-dose methotrexate arm, because you're giving those people, or you're, you're also shuttling all the CNS disease patients into the high-dose methotrexate arm. So no wonder they have high CNS relapse rates. Maybe those patients do benefit from nilarabine, but if you look at the Capizzi arm without nilarabine, there's no difference in CNS relapse rates compared to Capizzi and nilarabine. There is no advantage to the addition of nilarabine in that arm. That's interesting. So I think that claim is is dubious. It's dubious. I'm looking at the Kaplan-Meier, and they 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 make the difference look massive in figure I know, four because they changed the axis because <laughs> they changed the axis <laughs> i hate when they do that they changed, they, i was like oh shoot i was like 80 percent versus 10 percent, and then i was like wait a second point oh 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 how many point oh eight point oh eight and actually you know what else they do bernie, bernie? they um yeah. they don't they don't put numbers at risk below the axis no and if, if you look at it i bet that Look, I bet what we're really talking about here is like one, one or two, two three. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think I'm trying to count. I think maybe five events or seven events or something. I'm trying to get a sense, but I bet it's very few events. That's why they're not putting number at risk. I mean, yeah. these are these are highly mm, statistically dubious claims. Um, the whole thing is dubious to me. Well. This is the new standard of care in T-cell oh. ALL. And I think what happened was we had so many negative trials right, in T-cell. B-cell is all these cool new fancy drugs, right? Right. Um, we wanted this to be a success. I wanted this to be a success. Everybody did. And I think we're, we lowered the bar to make this the standard. 
Um, and we're doing that in other diseases right now. We're doing it in lymphoma with Polarex. You know, yes. it seems like we're just lowering the bar because we wanted the results to be positive and we don't like negative results. I mean, I don't like negative results either, but call it what it is. Maybe there's a nuanced population that should get this drug, but this trial does not tell me that every T-cell ALL patient should get nalarabine and especially not adult patients right now, period. I think it's a problem. And, um, I think it's a big problem because the trial doesn't give you enough information to make that call. It's a different standard of care. Absolutely. I think what I would like to see is take the people you think will benefit the most and run a new randomized control trial. That's really the scientific approach to this problem. Yep. Um, they're not doing it. And just your point about Polarix, because we haven't yet seen the data, but we have the press no. release, but it does smell like there's going to be no OS benefit because that's what they say so far. Um, I think Polarix and Echelon 1 are really problematic in the sense that this is one of the few spaces in oncology where the standard of care is really standard. R-CHOP mm -hmm. or uh, a a ABVD, mm -hmm. uh, really standard. And what you do with Echelon and you do with Polarix is you're going to fragment the standard you're going to there's i mean i guarantee you polarix is going to change the practice of 20 percent of the people tomorrow yeah. and yep. they'll they'll learn about it at the genentech drug dinner no <laughs> they'll learn about it at the drug dinner and just like echelon changed some people's practice right away but there's all yep. also a, a strong contingent of people who have not been persuaded by echelon and there'll be a strong contingent not persuaded by polarix and the problem then is subsequent randomized control trials will be harder to interpret because what's the control mm -hmm. arm um you know that in the case of um AAVD, uh, the SWOG, they validated oh, yeah. it in, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're running in, uh, just to tell the listeners, they took Echelon 1 and they said it was gospel and they made the control arm of a different a -A randomized control trial, they made it AAVD, which is not really the control arm and then they tested against what, A-NEVO-VD. Yep. VD, um, yeah. and, and, and that is basically a cooperative group sanctioning the pharmaceutical marketing budget of Seattle Genetics. They're really, they're basically doing the best advertisement for Seattle Genetics ever because they're saying this is the standard of care control arm in our group. Um, these are really problematic. Uh, Nalarabine and Oralaza are costly branded drug products and the manufacturer has plenty of money to run another study. We don't have to allow these products to market with very uncertain evidence. We can do the extra study. Um, maybe they don't. Maybe there is a subset that they're meant for. Um, like in the case of Oralaza, it would be mm -hmm. like people who were adequately treated with all the available chemo, who really aren't candidates for transplant, who really right. also um, are at very high risk and might yep. not be candidates for a relapse therapy, like that, whatever, that that's that population, yep. maybe at best. Yeah. And the candidate for nilarabine might be somebody with high, high risk, risk disease, CNS MRD disease. positive, CNS disease, yeah. yes. But what you really want with both of those is randomized trials in just those populations. Yeah. I know. And we didn't, we didn't get that. And I think this is where, you know, as pharmacists and as, as clinicians, I think this is where we're trying to sort of pioneer and put the word out about oncology stewardship. You know, we're trying to use these drugs rationally, even though these poorly done trials are going to get done, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have to accept them as gospel and we right. don't have to use these drugs and we can have power by saying, you know, this is not going to be our standard of care at Michigan. We're going to do X, Y, Z instead based on our data and based on what our interpretation of the literature until people change and they run either better trials or we do our own uh, multi-center pharmacy run 
studies that we can try to do. And that's sort of where we're at right now. And hopefully more people start thinking that way. Yeah, I agree with you so much, Bernie. I think that it's a it's a real public policy structural problem, which is how mm-hmm. can uh, the the last of us we're like yes. um, we're like the survivors in The Walking Dead. There's just a few of us left. <laughs> <laughs> there's just a few of us left, Bernie. Uh-huh. There's just like ten of us. We're, yeah. we're we're Rick's gang, and there's this big Negan's out of us. <laughs> there's only like a few of us left, and we want to uh-huh. run. We want to run some like actually yeah. informative, practice changing, randomized trials. There's no mm-hmm. way to do it because all the cooperative groups really they need the industry to participate, so their trials are kind of skewed increasingly. Um, I worry that you know your pharmaceutical stewardship initiative. Um, you know, I don't work for drug companies, but if I were working at a drug company, I would imagine that the first thing to do is to hijack the pharmacists. <laughs> I mean, I guess they're like it's happening. Yeah. You know, it's happening right now. We we've talked about on a national scale. We're calling it the great migration of clinical to, pharmacists to to the industry. Oh yeah, because we're being pushed out. Because I I don't think right now. Our leaders, our managerial leaders, value the same things that the clinical pharmacists value, um, and it's a it's a problem on a national scale. Mm. And I think that there's this draw to go to industry because people get burned out. There's this survey that was done um, by some Hemoc pharmacists that um, was published very recently, and there's a huge burnout rate in oncology pharmacy right now, and people are just going to the industry in droves because. We're not valuing these clinical initiatives. We're not valuing this stuff, going on podcasts, doing research. And it's not just me. Like I'm just a tiny, tiny representation of all these clinical pharmacists everywhere who are doing amazing work and should be celebrated, but our voices are not, they're not always out there. Mm. And I think we're being plucked away (laughs) because we're on service 24 seven and nobody cares. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're really making a, a good point. Um, I think uh, if I were in charge, what I think needs to be done is that anyone who works at an academic university whose job requires judgment, which is a lot of different professions, including mm-hmm. yours, mine, and many others, I think serious amounts of their time have to be protected for thinking uh, yes. because that thinking is critical. and. The only place that can really do it is an academic university where there is not this financial, you know, push. To be honest, even I, I heard this. I don't know if this would be true. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. That if you work at Google and you're a product engineer, they still give you like 20% of your time just to think about whatever you want to think about in the hopes that maybe some of those things think about something very fruitful. Turn into great ideas. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. similarly here, like thinking about stewardship, it's not easy. It takes yeah. a long time to read these it papers. It takes a long time. Yeah. And it can have a huge impact on making sure patients get the right drugs, like the right. best drug for them that is most cost-effective and is going to benefit the institution and patients more in the long run than sort of pulling us away from those things. So Now, the only challenge is if you yeah. find a drug that is problematic uh-huh. and it, uh, it doesn't benefit the institution, here's how that might be. If there is a drug, let's say, I don't know what it is, but there's a mm-hmm. drug where an institution may have ongoing research contracts between, let's say, 10 to $50 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and, 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 and the researchers at that institution find that that drug is misused. I mm-hmm. think, uh, the university might stand to save a little bit of money, the marginal spend rate of that drug on the patients, but that might be smaller than the amount of research money they stand to lose by having a faculty member threaten the, the product. So I do yeah. think there's a structural problem that it's like very, there's difficult. a huge, huge yeah. structural problem. And 
thankfully we're, we're outside of that, uh, that getting large research dollars thing. Although I wish I was getting some large research dollars. To <laughs> well, do things. So, I mean, you, you, there must be many, many clinical trials run there. Uh, I don't yeah, know. There, there are, but I think, yeah. you know, our clinicians are, our, our physicians are, they're phenomenal and they, they have rational minds and they're great yes. at also picking apart these trials. So I think, you know, they're not afraid to challenge the status quo too, which, which I love, you know, That's I learn from them every day. I heard a story about somebody who was working at a place and then like the leadership called this person and was like, you're very critical of an AstraZeneca drug. I need you to stop talking about AZ. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, oh boy. boy. <laughs> I was so like, hey. I should be, I should be expecting my call uh, in jazz. about a week or two. From, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From a couple of companies. From a couple of companies. Yeah. Oh, I'll get it soon. It's fine. Well, Bernie Marini, uh, is there anything else we wanted to talk about? No, this no. is a pleasure. It was terrific. Yeah, really, so many pearls, and I, I think people. This is the kind of episode people want to listen to twice. Even myself, I'm going to listen to again uh, just to make sure I got it all. But I mean, I think all of the points, Oralaza, you crushed it. The points on this drug, I think, are terrific as well. Uh, Bernie, it's always a pleasure. Love to have you back. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.